Before we get started today, I'd like to take a moment and dedicate this episode to my grandmother who passed away last week. Nami had far too grand a life for me to encapsulate it in a few words, but I do want to share a quick memory. When lockdown happened last year, my cousins and I started doing semi-regular Zoom meetings just to kind of keep in touch. And we're Catholic, so there are plenty of cousins. Anyway, one time, one of my cousins said we had a special guest on the call that night, and she had looped in Nami. You have never seen a group of grown kids so happy to chat with their grandmother. And we talked and laughed with her all night. She was such a lovely, warm-hearted lady who touched so many lives, and most importantly, though I may be biased about this, she gave the world my amazing mother. I miss you, Nami. I hope every day is Christmas in heaven. Thank you for bearing with me, everyone. On with the show. Hey, buddy, what you doing? Is it Christmas yet? No, sorry, not yet. I can't wait for Christmas. Yeah, I can't wait for Christmas either. In fact, let's celebrate now. (laughs) Welcome to the Can't Wait for Christmas podcast. July 25th, 2021, and that means there's just five months left until Christmas. Today on the show, we'll pay our respects to director Richard Donner by remembering the 1988 classic, Scrooged. We'll also count down the top five Simpsons Christmas episodes, give you a recipe for Rudolph pancakes, and we'll hear your favorite decorations in the latest installment of Seasons Musings. Okay, let's start the show! Happy Can't Wait for Christmas anniversary, you believers! Today marks six years of the Can't Wait for Christmas podcast. We've come a long way since I awkwardly fumbled through a deep dive into a Charlie Brown Christmas, but thank you to all of you who've been here since the beginning, as well as all of you who've joined us along the way. But you didn't come here to listen to me pat myself on the back. You came here for Christmas, and we need a little Christmas now. We need a year it is 2020 yum on the can't wait for christmas podcast wait what does that mean i'll tell you imaginary listener that sounds kind of like Kermit the frog but i feel like you should remember this from previous episodes this year yeah i'm not that great at retaining things fair enough 2020 yum means every christmas now tip this year will be a recipe that you can make at home to get a taste of christmas today we're going to dip back into the breakfast part of your meal with some rudolph pancakes to get started you'll need two cups of white flour three-fourths of a teaspoon of salt one and a half teaspoons of baking soda two cups of buttermilk two eggs beaten two tablespoons of melted butter strawberries halved one per reindeer blueberries two per reindeer bacon cooked two per reindeer and some whipped cream All right, now before you get started, you're going to want to turn on your griddle to 400 degrees, and you want to make sure it's heated up before you start cooking your pancakes. And you're going to need two big bowls, and you're going to have one bowl for your dry ingredients, your flour, salt, baking soda, you mix those together, and another bowl, the wet ingredients, the buttermilk, beaten eggs, and the butter. Once you've got those two bowls all mixed up, you add the wet ingredients into the bowl with the dry ingredients and stir only until combined. Don't overmix. Then you make your pancakes. For every reindeer, you make one large pancake and one small pancake. Then, once you got your pancakes all made, you get your plate out. You put the large pancake down. Bap. Then, you put the smaller pancake on top towards the bottom. 
Put a little dollop of whipped cream for the two eyes and one dollop for the nose. Then you take your half strawberry and put that on the top of the nose. Then you take one blueberry each for each of the eyes. Then you break the bacon into pieces, make them antlers coming out of the top, and bingo, bango, you've got yourself Rudolph the Red Nose Pancake. Fun fact, the main reason I picked this was for the blueberry eyes. You see, blueberries are not actually blue, they're purple. And my grandmother's favorite color was purple, which is why the logo on the album art for this month's show is purple in her honor. But purple is not a color that's used a ton in traditional Christmas imagery, so this was my subtle way of sneaking some in. Is this a tribute worthy of my wonderful grandmother? No. But it did give me an excuse to talk about her a little more, which was my goal. Anyway, I found this recipe at oldsaltfarm.com, and I'll be sure to put a link to it in the show notes at can'twaitforchristmaspod.com. And now it's time for our countdown feature, Five Golden Things. Typically, our anniversary episode is an all-listener request special. In the past, everything from the Christmas Now tip to the main segment of the July episode was taken from listener suggestions. Unfortunately, the main segment was driven by something else this month, which we'll get into later. But I did want to use a listener suggestion for the Five Golden Things countdown. And this suggestion, which you'll see I'm clearly very late in getting to, is from Billy, who wrote, Hey Tim, I really enjoy your podcast, and I hope this Christmas season finds you well and healthy. I was thinking about something I don't know if you've covered on your podcast, The Simpsons. I'm not sure if there'd be enough info to dedicate a whole episode to, but they have a done a number of really good Christmas-themed episodes, and the pilot episode itself was a Christmas special, Simpsons Roasting on an Open Fire. I even have a Christmas Simpsons Village I put out every year. Stay warm. It's cold with snow on the ground here in northeast Oklahoma. Anyway, thank you for your show, keeping us in the Christmas spirit year-round. Merry Christmas, God bless, Billy from Oklahoma. Thank you, Billy. I did mention The Simpsons briefly in the early years of the podcast when I did a top five list of the best Christmas episodes of TV shows, I actually picked The Simpsons Pilot, Simpsons Roasting on an Open Fire. But The Simpsons has been on for 32 seasons now, and 31 of those are available on Disney+. Plus. So I sat down and watched all The Simpsons Christmas episodes I could to come up with my top five Simpsons Christmas episodes. Fair warning, I just started watching all the Christmas episodes in order and made my list before Googling what other people's top five Christmas episodes were. Let me tell you, I seem to be wired differently than a lot of folks because my order is way, way different than the rest of the internet. So, don't have a cow, man, but some controversy is ahead. Oh, and I grabbed most of these plot summaries from the Simpsons fan wiki. Aye, caramba! Let's get started! Number five! Marge, be not proud. Dealing! How could you? Haven't you learned anything from that guy who gives those sermons at church? Captain, what's his name? We live in a society of laws! Why do you think I took you to all those Police Academy movies? For fun? Well, I didn't hear anybody laughing. Did you? Except that that guy who made sound effects. <laughs> hug, hug. <laughs> Where was I? Oh, yeah. Stay out of my booze. This is the one that seemed to be number one on most lists, and I get it. The story has a moral message and a sweetness to it. Bart is caught attempting to shoplift a video game. He tries to keep his failed four-finger discount trip a secret from Homer and Marge and initially succeeds. But unfortunately, Marge finds out when the family goes to the same store to have the family Christmas photo taken and punishes Bart by banning him from family activities. Now, while I enjoyed this one enough to put it on the list, it was never a contender for number one for me. For me, The Simpsons is all about laughs, and I was surprised by how many times I laughed out loud watching all these Christmas episodes. But while Marge Be Not Proud was definitely good about telling a great story about family and learning a lesson, it was a little light on the laughs for my taste. So, 
it rests here at number five. Number four. Simpsons Christmas Stories. Ugh, I hope I never hear that god-awful nutcracker music again. I don't know, Dad. This time of year, everybody does it because you don't have to pay for the music rights. Really? I've still got to bake my Christmas pie. I've got to get Dad a lousy tie. Christmas crowds is what I hide. No time left to procrastinate. So move yourself and let me pass because Christmas Eve is here. This one's kind of like the Halloween episodes The Simpsons do, where instead of just one story for the whole episode, this episode tells three different Christmas stories. In the first, Homer tells the nativity story, and so it's a nativity play with the Simpsons cast taking on the roles. Marge is Mary, Homer is Joseph, Bart is baby Jesus. In the second story, Grandpa tells a tale to Bart and Lisa about World War II, where he and Mr. Burns become stranded on a desert island and Burns shoots down Santa Claus. In the last story, everyone in Springfield prepares for Christmas to the music of Tchaikovsky's Nutcracker Ballet. These are the laughs I'm looking for. There's a lot to love in this episode, from the Nutcracker setup to Grandpa and Burns' interactions on the island to the absurdity of the Simpsons being in the Nativity story. All good stuff. Number three. The Grift of the Magi. Please, Mr. Coleman, we can explain. I'm listening. Your toy company is evil. Well, isn't it possible for an evil company to make people happy? Are you saying the end justifies the means? That's a very glib interpretation. Hey, don't talk to my sister that way. No, Bart, he's right. I did oversimplify. Perhaps, but let's not get bogged down in semantics. I think what Lisa meant to say is... And so, Gary Coleman and the Simpsons argued long into the night. And then, as day broke, the spirit of the season entered their hearts. Let's just agree that the commercialization of Christmas is at best a mixed blessing. Amen. Springfield Elementary School gets bought out by a private company who began using the school to do market research for a new toy. They unveil Funzo, the next Tickle Me Elmo-style fad, to Springfield's Christmas shoppers. The toy's a huge success, in part because it's programmed to destroy other toys. This episode features a great guest appearance by the late Gary Coleman from the 80s sitcom Different Strokes. He plays the security guard for the toy company, and all his scenes are quite funny. Also, the reveal that Funzo is evil is executed in a particularly funny way to me. Number two. Holidays of Future Past. I hereby declare Thanksgiving dinner officially over. Which means it's the start of Christmas season. Which means Christmas card photos! Yep! Can't we just send out a picture of the pets dressed like reindeer? We tried that last year. Don't! Who cares what we look like in whatever stupid year this is? You'll understand one day when you have kids of your own. Um, who says we're gonna have kids of our own? Not me, man. This cycle of jerks has to end. In this one, they flash forward 30 years in the future. Bart is a depressed single dad, Lisa is married to Milhouse, and Maggie is a rock star. Bart and Lisa bring their kids to Homer and Marge's house. When there, they learn about parenting and loving your family. Meanwhile, a pregnant Maggie is traveling to visit her family and falls into labor after arriving in Springfield. It's funny that the title they gave this episode was a parody of the X-Men comic movie Days of Future Past because it's more directly analogous to the Ghost of Christmas Future. This one had a lot of great stuff, including the way it worked out, so Maggie still never talked, even though she was a full-grown adult. All the future gags that were reminiscent of Futurama were great, but the best bit for me was when Bart and Lisa talked to each other about their lives, and we see there's real love there, but it's, of course, still funny and surprisingly touching. Honorable Mentions! The Fight Before Christmas. Tonight's Simpsons episode was brought to you by the symbol umlaut and the number E. Not the letter E, but the number whose exponential function is the derivative of itself. Well, 
Well, it's been a long run, but I think this will kill it. What? The Simpsons? No, Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> this is another one where there's several separate stories in the episode. Bart stays up to attack Santa for not getting a new bike last year, but falls asleep and has a dream about going to the North Pole and confronting him. Lisa has a dream that it's World War II and Marge is off fighting while Homer is home with the kids. Marge dreams that Martha Stewart comes to help her set up for Christmas. And finally, Maggie dreams that the Simpsons are all Muppet-style characters who are trying to sneak off to Hawaii for Christmas. I had to include this for the Muppet parody alone, where they actually shot live action puppets of The Simpsons and had Katy Perry show up. This was right after her appearance on Sesame Street was cut when people decided she was too scantily dressed. Now that Disney owns both The Muppets and The Simpsons, I'd love to see a return of these Simpsons Muppets. Number one. Tis the 15th season. And now, back to Mr. McGrew's Christmas Carol. Mr. McGrew, I love that blind senile old man. You work on Christmas or you're out of a job. Is that clear, Cratchit? Sir, I'm over here. Oh, I'm sorry. Pardon me, ma'am. I see you're expecting. May I listen to the baby's heartbeat? <laughs> oh, McGrew. Once again, you've mistaken something for something. After spending all his money on expensive gift for himself, the family thinks Homer should be less selfish. Therefore, he tries becoming the best good guy in town, much to the chagrin of Ned Flanders. This didn't seem to top anyone's list of favorite Christmas episodes, but mine. I love this one so much. It has a moral about being less selfish, but also about the pitfalls of ego even when doing good works. Of all the Christmas episodes I watched, I definitely laughed the most at this one. Tons of great stuff in there. I definitely recommend you check this one out right now if you have Disney+. Plus. And that's my list. Hope that was okay, Billy. But did I leave your favorite Simpsons episode out? There are definitely a bunch of them, so it's a distinct possibility. Let me know which ones are your favorites in the comments at can'twaitforchristmaspod.com. And now a word from one of the other podcasts in the Christmas Podcast Network. Hi, everyone. I'm Dwayne from the Tinsel Tunes Podcast. And I have a questionably unhealthy obsession with Christmas. And I love Christmas music. So come with me on a journey as I go into detail about the history and stories behind a wide range of Christmas music. For instance, did you know that Silent Night has the honour of being the most recorded Christmas song of all time? And has been recorded over 137,000 times by separate artists. Or that White Christmas was actually written in the height of summer. Each song, either recent or a golden oldie, has a background and I want to share them with you. Come join us and listen at tinseltunes.com. We are on all the main podcast services, or you can find us with a simple Google search. Also follow us on all the social networking platforms, and I hope to interact with you soon. Welcome back. A few weeks ago, the world had to say goodbye to director Richard Donner. He was perhaps best known for the Lethal Weapon films, The Goonies, and of course, the movie that blazed the trail for all comic book movies that came after it, Superman the Movie. But in the Christmas community, Donner is known for directing the 1988 Christmas classic, Scrooged. So as a salute to Richard Donner, I thought we'd dedicate some time to talking about Scrooged. Bill Murray. <laughs> Karen Allen. It sounded like he'd seen a ghost. A ghost? John Forsythe. <laughs> Bobcat Goldthwaite. Hey! You do to see me or is this a shotgun in your pocket? <laughs> you know this one? <laughs> Everybody knows this one. Let's go now. Now does everybody know this one? Carol Kane. Robert Mitchum. I really care. David Johansson. Oh, I'm having the weirdest day. See Bill Murray get Scrooged. Hey, 
Back off, big man. That may work with the chicks, but not with me. This is definitely one of my favorite Christmas movies. It's got a little bit of everything. It's funny. It's romantic. It's scary. It's Christmas. What more do you need? It's a modern retelling of the Charles Dickens story, A Christmas Carol. And by modern, I mean over three decades old. It's the 1980s. Instead of the owner of a counting house, our main character, Frank Cross, is a TV executive. But the broad strokes are the same. He's given a warning by a ghost of an old mentor figure. Three ghosts take him to Christmas of the past, present, and future. And he learns the true meaning of Christmas. But what's crazy is, in the world of Scrooge, the story of A Christmas Carol exists, because during the movie, Frank is producing a live broadcast of A Christmas Carol. That is quite a meta bit of storytelling, but it's also weird, Frank never seems to make the connection with what's happening to him and the Dickens story that he is producing. You are going to be visited by three ghosts. Ooh, three ghosts. Three ghosts, Frank. Expect the first one tomorrow at noon. God, tomorrow's bad for me, Lou. As a matter of fact, the whole rest of the week is a washout. Ouch. Well, maybe we could have drinks, say, Thursday. You, me, the ghost, Trader Vic's around this four. This no bad. joke, right? This is your last chance. All right. I could squeeze you in for a breakfast. I guess it just goes to show Hollywood executives don't pay attention to the stories that they're telling, but more on that later. Speaking of stories, the story behind the movie is almost as interesting as the movie itself. Apparently, it was not an easy production. But let's jump in that crazy New York taxi cab and revisit Scrooge's past. Get in, pal. I'll tell you how I was almost played by comedian Sam Kennison. Hang on, we'll get to casting stuff later. First, we need to go to the beginning. Let's head to Saturday Night Live but we're not here to see who you think. SNL head writer Michael O'Donohue and fellow writer Mitch Glazer were asked to write a new take on A Christmas Carol. As writers on SNL, they felt the natural setting for this updated version was the world of television. Though their vision was much darker than what ended up in the finished film, kind of like how the movie Pretty Woman was originally written as a gritty story about life on the streets in Hollywood, similarly, Scrooge undertook a major tonal shift in the course of going from the page to the screen. In fact, O'Donohue, who passed away in 1994, was very vocal about his dislike for the finished film. He said that only about 40% of what they wrote actually made it to the screen. He was particularly upset by Murray's long, improvised take of the ending monologue of the film, which to me is a real shame. It's like when you find out P.L. Travers hated the Mary Poppins movie or Stephen King hates the Jack Nicholson Shining movie, because the ending monologue to Scrooge is really what puts the movie over the top for me. It's such a manic, crazed speech, like Frank is about to lose his grip on reality at any moment, which makes sense when you consider all the supernatural things that have happened to him in the past 24 hours. Richard Donner said that's where he saw Bill Murray go from being an entertainer to being a true actor. There are people that don't have enough to eat. There are people that are cold. You can go out and say hello to these people. You can take an old blanket out of the closet and say, here, you can make them a sandwich and say, oh, by the way, here. I get it now. And if you if you give, then you then it can happen. Then the miracle can happen to you. It's not just the poor and the hungry. It's it's everybody who's got to have this miracle. And it can happen tonight for all of you. If you believe in this spirit thing, you, you the miracle will happen and then you'll want it to happen again tomorrow. You won't be one of these bastards who says Christmas is once a year and it's a fraud. It's not. It can happen every day. You've just got to want that feeling. And if you like it and you want it, you'll get greedy for it. You'll want it every day of your life and it can happen to you. Although Glazer seems to have a more favorable view of it, perhaps because it's become a beloved holiday staple. But in an interview a few years back, he noted how they were able to give the movie heart, but keep it honest as well. He said, we were really hard on ourselves not to get sappy for the sake of it, which is why it doesn't feel like a lie. 
They actually wrote the script with Bill Murray in mind, but he passed on it initially. After his performance in the film The Razor's Edge was critically panned, Murray stopped seeking out acting roles and focused on spending more time with his family. Now, to be clear, correlation doesn't equal causation. I don't know if Razor's Edge or the reaction to it is what made him want to take a break. He was also in two other movies in 1984, Nothing Lasts Forever and a little film called, uh, let me see... Oh, Ghostbusters. Yeah, I believe I've heard of it. So maybe he was just tired. The only things he appears in between those movies and Scrooge was a brief role in Little Shop of Horrors, the briefest of cameos in She's Having a Baby, and he was in the music video for Hot 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 by Buster Poindexter. Buster Poindexter, a.k.a. David Johansson, a.k.a. the ghost of Christmas past. They say Johansson's friendship with Murray is what got him the role over Sam Kinison. Dude, it's still too early for casting. Fine, I'll be in the cab. Anyway, a few years later, when Murray decided he wanted to get back into acting, he wasn't getting many scripts that interested him. So he went back to O'Donoghue and Glazer's Christmas Carol script. He wasn't ready to jump on board right away, though. He wanted changes to the script. According to Murray in an interview with Starlog magazine... Uh, we tore up the script so badly that we had parts all over the lawn. There was a lot I didn't like. To make the story, we took the romantic element and built that up a little more. It existed in the script's original version, but we had to make more out of it. The family scenes were kind of off, so we worked on that. Was that supposed to be Bill Murray? I thought you were waiting in the cab. I thought you knew what Bill Murray's voice sounded like. Buzz off! Anyway, once the script was to his liking and he was set up to get $6 million for his role, Murray signed on and it was time to find a director. The initial choice was Sidney Pollack, who had directed Out of Africa and would go on to direct The Firm and had previously worked with Bill Murray on Tootsie. However, Pollack apparently had enough disagreements with the writers that he pulled out. It was then that Richard Donner was considered, and he was initially reluctant to take up directing duties. He wasn't sure he could deliver a comedy version of Christmas Carol, but I heard that he actually agreed to sign on after meeting with Bill Murray and sharing copious amounts of tequila. Now, I should mention I only heard that in one YouTube video, and I haven't been able to find a second source for that, so it might be hogwash, but what's true is Richard Donner was now in the director's chair. And that's where the real conflicts begin. As it turns out, Donner and Murray's preferred methods were drastically different. Donner liked to move fast, get what he needed, and move on, whereas Murray liked a relaxed pace and was continually improvising. When asked by film critic Roger Ebert if he had any conflicts with Donner, Murray said, oh, only a few, every single minute of the day. That could have been a really, really great movie. The script was so good. There's maybe one take in the final cut movie that is mine. We made it so fast. It was like doing a movie live. He kept telling me to do things louder, louder, louder. I think he was deaf. I mean, I like Bill Murray, but I'm with Donner on this one. The evil stuff Frank does has to be over the top, so we don't hate him before he gets a shot at redemption. Donner was a bit more charitable when describing directing Murray. He told the Philadelphia Daily News, It's like standing on 42nd Street and Broadway, and the lights are out, and you're the traffic cop. And apparently, all those improvisational takes led them to shooting a lot of footage that didn't make it into the movie. It would be great to see some of those deleted scenes on a home video release or something, but more on that later. The improving was an adjustment for his co-stars as well, like Karen Allen of Raiders of the Lost Ark fame, who plays Frank's estranged girlfriend, Claire. She talked about Murray's improvisational style in an interview with Vulture in 2018, where she said, He didn't like to rehearse. He wanted things to stay very for the first time, so a lot of times, I feel like he used improvisation to find his way to enter scenes. I think Bill had a resistance to saying the lines that were written, but often he did know them. He had learned them, and sometimes he would just need to improvise for a while to get to the place where he could actually say the lines. His dialogue came out of a more spontaneous place inside him, so he had his own kind of process. Side note, Karen Allen is so charming in this movie. The love story really only works the way she plays it. 
Like she's in love with the guy deep inside Frank that only she can see. But back to that Vulture article she was quoted in, they also talked to Carol Kane, the ghost of Christmas present, who said, Wait, we're talking about the cast now and you skipped past the ghost of Christmas past and jumped all the way to the ghost of Christmas present? Oh, right. Did you have anything more to add? Like how Sam Kinison was originally going to play the Ghost of Christmas Past? Yeah, you already said that. But the role went to David Johansson. Yeah, you mentioned that. Who was known as Buster Poindexter for the song Hot, Hot, Hot. Yeah, you covered that as well. You got anything else? I, uh, well, not really. I used up all my good facts when you were shutting me down. Well, that's all in the past. That's my whole thing! Okay, well, this bit is done. Back to Carol Kane. Oh, come on! She not only had to adjust to Bill Murray's improvisational style, she also had the unenviable task of beating Murray up. The Ghost of Christmas Present kicks, slaps, and punches Frank repeatedly in the movie. Apparently it was Murray's idea for Kane to actually get physical for real while shooting that, and it was rough on Kane, who apparently broke down in crying fits while shooting. I'm sure Murray regretted all this method acting too, because at one point, when the ghost grabs Frank's bottom lip and pulls it, Kane accidentally injured Murray. Murray's lip pretty badly, so much so they had to stop filming for a couple days. In addition, Carol Kane worked very hard to learn a ballet for a brief dance that the ghost does when she first enters. She had never done ballet before, so she worked really hard to do it the best she could so they could use footage of her and not have to rely solely on her dancing body double. But when she showed her moves to the film's art director, Michael Riva, he couldn't stop laughing. In that same Vulture interview I was talking about a minute ago, Kane said, Michael, God bless him, went to Dick Donner, God bless him, and said, I think we should just use it the way it is and not have a double, and not have it be pretty. Just show her character trying because her character can't do this dance. So that's what happened. And that's what's in the film. I think Michael and Dick were so courageous and creative to do the dance scene the way we did. My dance was just such a mess, but it was the best I could do. And it was the best the character could do. Among the rest of the cast, you had Alfre Woodard from Luke Cage, Hill Street Blues, L.A. Law, and of course, Star Trek First Contact. She plays the Bob Cratchit analog, Frank Cross's assistant, Grace. In an interview, Woodward had some nice things to say about working with Murray. She said, Bill likes me. We had a great time together. Most people take me more seriously than I take myself. There were also three of Bill Murray's brothers in the movie. Brian Doyle Murray, who was also the mayor in Groundhog's Day, played Frank's dad. John Murray played Frank's brother. And Joel Murray played a guest at Frank's brother's party. Comedian Bobcat Goldwave plays the character fired by Frank at the beginning of the movie who comes back to bite him at the end of the movie. His name is Elliot Loudermilk. Louder Milk, a last name I didn't even bat an eyelash at during the movie, but as I see it written out in front of me, it sounds pants-soilingly ridiculous. Some fun facts about Scrooge, it was the last appearance of the Solid Gold Dancers. They were part of the live broadcast of the A Christmas Carol movie that they were putting on in the movie Scrooged, but Solid Gold was cancelled in between when they started filming and when the movie came out. But you want to know what's crazy? Scrooge predicted the future, not once, not twice, but three separate times. Like I mentioned earlier, one of the main subplots of the movie is Frank's network putting on a live performance of Scrooge on Christmas Eve. Well, live performances on TV in December were kind of a big thing in the early aughts. Sound of Music, Peter Pan, and The Wiz all had live televised productions for television. Then, in one memorable scene, Frank's boss tells him that they should start programming for pets. I have here a study from Hampstead University which shows us that cats and dogs are beginning to watch television. Now, if these scientists are right, we should start programming right now. Well, in 20 years, they could become steady viewers. Programming for cats. Walk with me, Frank. Call the police. Well, right now, there are several Roku channels that are for pets. This was supposed to be a ridiculous joke, and someone said, Hey, that's a good idea. We should do that. Hey, were you trying to sound like me? Oh, 
no imaginary listener sounds like Kermit the Frog. I was just, that was me doing a silly voice. Well, don't do silly voices. Okay, that's, that's a good note. Thank you. Speaking of ridiculous jokes that became real, the movie opens with a fake commercial for a fake Christmas movie that Frank Station is playing called The Night the Reindeer Died, where terrorists attack the North Pole and there's a huge gunfight at Santa's workshop. Then, just this last Christmas, there was a Mel Gibson movie called Fat Man, where a kid hired a hitman to attack Santa because he got a lump of coal for Christmas. In fairness, I never bothered seeing this movie because, why? But when the trailer came out, I was like, they saw the fake movie at the beginning of Scrooge and thought, let's just make that. Now, let's talk about the music of Scrooged. Annie Lennox and Al Green did a cover of Put a Little Love in Your Heart that now gets played at Christmas every year, which is hilarious because the song itself has nothing to do with Christmas. But it does work really well for the themes of Scrooge and A Christmas Carol in general. The very first lines, think of your fellow man, lend him a helping hand, put a little love in your heart. That could be a line said to Scrooge by the Ghost of Christmas Present. It just works. Inspired choice, I'd say. For the film's score, Richard Donner wanted John Williams. And why wouldn't he? The last time Donner and Williams worked together, we got this piece of musical magic. But also, he would want a master like Williams because this would be a tricky film to score. It has so many tones. There are scary scenes, broad comedy scenes, subtle romantic scenes, action beats, so much going on. It would be a challenge to juggle it all. Luckily, Danny Elfman was up to that challenge. While he'd had several film scores under his belt by this point, Pee-wee's Big Adventure, Beetlejuice, Back to School, this was his first time to show off his distinctive Christmas style, something he would revisit again in Edward Scissorhands, Batman Returns, and of course, The Nightmare Before Christmas. I've always loved Elfman's score for Scrooge. Right from the very beginning, it says a bunch of things at once. It says, hey, it's Christmas. Hey, something spooky's going on, but don't worry. We're gonna have fun with it. Unfortunately, I do not own a copy of the score for this movie, which leads me to my mind-blowing revelation. Paramount is trying to bury this movie. Now, I don't want to sound like those tinfoil hat-wearing trolls going on and on about the Snyderverse, but just look at the facts. It took them 23 years to release the score for Scrooge on CD, and when they did, they only made 3,000 copies. Why? I want one, but I'd have to pay an arm and a leg on eBay to get it, which doesn't make sense. That money doesn't go to the studio or the producers. It's just going to some lucky eBay seller. Then there's the 2006 special edition DVD release called the Yule Lovett edition that never came out. They announced it, showed off the box art, and then it just never came out. Which is a real shame for me. That disc was supposed to be chock full of good stuff I could have used to write this episode. There was a commentary by Richard Donner, behind the scenes documentaries, all sorts of great stuff for fans like me who want to do a deep dive into this classic holiday favorite. It's insane that Paramount is sitting on all of this. We need to take to social media and tell Paramount to hashtag release the Donner Cut. Uh, Tim, there is already something called the Donner Cut. There is? Uh, yes, it's Richard Donner's original version of Superman 2 before the producers fired him halfway through making it. Oh, so I guess hashtag release the Donner Cut won't work? No, no it won't. Okay, so now it's hashtag release the Donner Cut, no not that one, we mean the Scrooge You'll Love It edition. Seems like you should shorten that a bit? We gotta get our beloved movie back from this evil studio that doesn't understand this movie and never understood his true message. What makes you say that? Because I've saved the best behind-the-scenes story for last. You see, the filming of the movie started in December 1987. And Richard Donner thought it was only fitting that production take Christmas Day off. 
But Paramount said, no, you have to make everybody work on Christmas. That's the kind of thing Frank Cross would do in the movie. Exactly my point. Well, that stinks. They had to work on Christmas to make a movie about how you shouldn't work on Christmas. Oh, they didn't work on Christmas. But you said... Oh, Paramount was going to make them. But fortunately, Richard Donner did understand the message of the movie. So he fired everyone on December 24th. Was that the message of the movie? And he rehired them all on December 26th. Oh, so they couldn't work on Christmas, but they still had jobs after Christmas. Yes. Now, I never met Richard Donner, but he always seemed like a pretty cool guy in interviews. And as Superman the movie's number one superfan, I've watched a lot of Richard Donner interviews, which is why I'd like to end this look at Scrooge with some words from the man himself. He was asked if he was worried about how people would react to making A Christmas Carol into a comedy and where the line was between staying true to Dickens and creating something new. And he said this. It's a thin line. It's a very thin line. But you have two of the most irreverent writers in the world. You have the most irreverent humorist since W.C. Fields. Uh, and you say, let's go. Let's just, let's go. There's a thin line you walk, but the, the line is broken, hopefully, in the end of the picture where you see a man evolve out of a situation. And when Bill Murray pulled off that last scene the way he did, uh, I, I, I felt confident, and slightly insecure, but I felt confident that we, we had accomplished what we wanted when I ran it with an audience off-the-street audience for the first time, and I saw them react. There were a lot of tears, a lot of sniffling, embarrassed sniffling, because you don't know whether you're supposed to become emotionally involved with this character, but when you do, I, I, I felt confident we'd walk the line right. Indeed, you did walk the line right, Mr. Donner. I'm sorry it was such an ordeal for you and all involved to get this movie made, but I'm so very glad you did. Rest in peace, my friend. <laughs> Finally today, let's hear from you and our newest feature, Seasons Musings. Seasons Musings coming through, can't wait to hear the thoughts sent in by you. All year I'm asking you questions from this card game called the Christmas Chat Pack that my mom gave me for Christmas. I'm asking you to record your answers and send them in for all of us to enjoy. Last time the question was, what is your favorite Christmas decoration? Let's hear what your favorite decorations were, starting with the voice of the villain from last year's diehard Hallmark mashup movie, A Bomb for Christmas, Jeffrey. Hey, Tim. My favorite Christmas decoration is a three-inch tall little church that I hand-painted just before the first Christmas in our first new house with my wife, Terry. It was our third Christmas together and the last one without children. I even used tiny little brushes to put in some stained glass and little candles with even tinier little flames and finished it off with some textured fake snow. Those steady hands and good eyes are long gone, but that ornament still remains. And I was very pleased when my wife, Terry, in answer to your question, said that it was her favorite Christmas decoration. Merry Christmas. That was great. Now let's hear from Monica. Hello. 
Tim and fellow waiters. It's Monica again. My favorite Christmas decoration at home would have to be the Christmas tree,、um, and I know it's kind of a cop out because the Christmas tree already has beautiful ornaments and lights and the angel on top of it. But this is exactly why the tree is my favorite decoration. The tree embodies most things that I love about Christmas. It's joyful and bright and homey, and it's fun to set up. Thank you, Monica. And now our friend Chris from Kringle Talks Football. Hey Tim, it's、uh, Chris Kringle once again from Kringle Talks Football.、Uh, my favourite piece of Christmas decoration for around my house is probably my two foot, three foot tall Santa Claus I bought when I was in、um, Sweden a few years back. It's yeah, they've got a, like a whole range of different Scandinavian versions of Santa Claus and.、Um, Yeah, I bought it a few years back, and I tried to buy a life-size one too, and、uh, you know, I couldn't really fit it in my luggage, so I couldn't bring that back with me. But I would probably say that one there. I've got a few other similar ornaments. Well, I've got quite a few collection of those specific type of Santa Claus,、um, dressed in that the grey sort of wintry feel that he's trudging along, pulling his sleigh along in the background.、Uh, you can hear my daughter singing in the background. She's I think she's. I think she likes the Santa Claus too, but yeah, I'd say that's probably my my favourite piece of decoration in the house. Anyways, Tim, as usual, merry half Christmas and keep laughing all the way. Take care. Thank you, Chris. Next up, let's hear from Benji. Hi, Tim. I have many favourite Christmas decorations, but the one that comes to the top of the list are the three foot tall wooden framed stars that my dad made and covered with those big、uh, multicolour Christmas lights strands. It was always、uh, meant that it was Christmas time at my house. Thanks. Thank you very much, Benji. And now, last and most certainly not least, here's one that was sent to me back in June from my favorite listener, Chrissy, aka my wonderful mother. My favorite ornament? Let's see. I've got a blue truck. That's a symbol for my dad, a golf ball for my brother, friends and family framed ornaments, and a paper gingerbread man that still has marshmallow buttons, a small licorice smile, and one raisin eye. These are all must-haves on my Christmas tree. However, my absolute favorite is my 37-year-old cardboard-coned, styrofoam-headed, pipe cleaner-haloed, and glittery-winged angel. It waits patiently to be placed on top while it watches me place all my other memory savorings on the tree. It is put away every year, but never packed away. I just can't wait for Christmas. Thanks, Mom, and thanks all. If you want to get on to the next one, let me get you another question from the deck. Ready? Okay, here it is. In your opinion, what is the quintessential instrument of the Christmas season? Ooh, this is a good one. But I'm going to change it slightly to your favorite instrument of the Christmas season. In fact, at some point, I'm going to do a five golden things of my favorite Christmas instruments. So I guess I'm going to spoil my number one right now. I love the banjo for Christmas music. It reminds me of hanging around Frontierland and Disneyland during Christmas, which just makes my Christmas heart happy. But what about you? What's your favorite instrument of the Christmas season? I'll also accept answers for quintessential Christmas instrument or both. Record yourself on your phone or laptop and send the file to Christmas at tancast dot com. What was that? Christmas at tancast dot com. As always, if you'd like to get the deck I'm using to get the topics for this segment, there's a link in the show notes so you can grab your own Christmas chat pack. And the jingle for this segment featured "Deck the Halls" by Kevin McLeod, which was used under Creative Commons 3.0 Attribution License. 
And that's our show for today. I promised to bring back the All Listener Request show for our next anniversary, but I do want to shout out a particular listener, Bob. Bob has been sending great emails every month, and they even have five golden thing lists, but they are all super visual, so I haven't figured out a way to use them on the show. But I don't want you to think that your efforts are unappreciated, Bob. In fact, I don't want anyone who's listening to think you're unappreciated. I'm very grateful that we've been able to enjoy seven years of Christmas goodness together on this podcast. Before we go, don't forget to head to the show notes for that recipe for Rudolph Pancakes, a perfect Christmas in July breakfast. And make sure to send us a recording of you talking about your favorite Christmas instrument. And be sure to take to social media with the hashtag that I'm sure is going to be trending soon. Hashtag release the Donner Cut. No, not that one. We mean the Scrooge You'll Love It edition. It just rolls right off the tongue. Stay safe out there because I want to see you all back here next month for more Christmas jolliness. And until then, you believers, keep laughing all the way. And that was Christmas 1983. Actually, Dad, it's 2021. Oh. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Can't Wait for Christmas podcast. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. Remember, if you leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, a.k.a. iTunes, and email us about it at christmas at tancast.com, we'll send you a free Can't Wait for Christmas sticker. If you'd like to see the show notes or leave a comment on this or any other episodes, you can go to our official website, can'twaitforchristmaspod.com. While you're there, you'll find a link to our official Zazzle store where you can grab customizable t-shirts, ornaments, stickers, and all sorts of other Christmas-themed items all year long. We'd love to connect with you on social media. On Facebook and Instagram, we are Can't Wait for Christmas Pod. And on Twitter, we are at Christmas Pod. We Wish You a Merry Christmas was performed by the United States Marine Corps Band, and this amazing version of Jingle Bells on the accordion was performed by the wonderful and talented Christian Nowicki. All other music and sounds used in this episode are the properties of their individual copyright holders, and they are used for purposes of commentary and review. No infringement is intended. Okay, boys, did I forget anything? God bless us, everyone. Merry Christmas! Happy Can't Wait for Christmas Anniversary, you believers. Today marks six. Happy Can't Wait for Christmas Anniversary, you. Yep. Stumbling right out of the gate. So I sat down and watched all the Simpsons episodes. So I sat down and watched all the Simpsons. So I sat down and watched all the Simpsons Christmas episodes I could. Phew. Okay. It was a typo. That's why. That's why. It wasn't my mouth this time. It was my fingers. The last story, everyone in Springfield prepares for Christmas to the music of Tchaikovsky. 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 When you see the T there, my Tim mouth wants to pronounce it Tchaikovsky, but I'm pretty sure it's Tchaikovsky. 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 Oh, never mind. I'm going to look it up. Tchaikovsky. Tchaikovsky. Why does that video have to be so long just to tell me how to pronounce Tchaikovsky? All right. The last story, in the last story, everybody in Springfield prepares for Christmas to the music of Tchaikovsky. I already forgot it. Tchaikovsky. In the last story, everyone in Springfield prepares for Christmas to the music of Tchaikovsky's Nutcracker Ballet. I, I, 
I got Tchaikovsky and then lost it on Nutcracker. It's going to be a long recording session. Anyway, a few years later, when Murray decided he wanted to get back into acting, he wasn't getting many scripts that interested in him. Anyway, a few years later, when Murray decided he wanted to get back into acting, he wasn't getting many scripts that interested in him. Ugh. <sighs> interested him. Pocketed it. <laughs> Inside joke. Apparently, all those improvisational... <sighs> improvisational. And apparently, all those improvis... Oh, my goodness. She talked about Murray's improvisation. <clears throat> Improvisational is my nemesis. She not only had to adjust to Bill Murray's improvis. <sighs> there it was again. Improvisational style. Improvisational. Improvisational. Learn it. Love it. Say it repeatedly throughout this podcast. Maybe find a synonym for it next time. <laughs>